Good morning. The title of this morning's message is Them's Fighting Words. <laughs> it would be subtitled Listening Practice Part 5. So if you feel like you're missing a little something when you hear the message, we have the rest of the four over there. <laughs> so as most of you know, a few weeks ago, I gave everybody what I called listening practice, which also could be known as prophesying practice. And I encouraged you to go home and ask God for a word, one for our church and two, one for somebody else. And most everybody participated and it was awesome. You did good. And I didn't tell you that you were prophesying until after you did it. Prophesying is us hearing what God says and then saying what God says. It releases power when we say what God says. And so you all had a taste of how easy it can be to prophesy. The Apostle Paul told us, y'all are supposed to speak in tongues and y'all are supposed to prophesy. <laughs> Those are the two things y'all are supposed to be doing. <laughs> Nobody is exempt. <laughs> but to prophesy, you first have to hear and you have to recognize that you hear. And so that was part of your homework. I told you to listen for the voice of God in your thoughts and in your unction that prompting, that nudging. You know God is poking you and you're not sure what we're supposed to do, but you recognize it's him. And so everybody did that and that's great. But what are we supposed to do now with those words, those prophecies, those scriptures that we have all received from God? What is the purpose of God giving us personal words and prophecies? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this to Timothy, verses 18 and 19. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck their faith. I like verse 18, particularly in the Good News translation. It says this, Timothy, my child, I entrust to you this command, which is in accordance with the words of prophecy spoken in the past about you. Use those words as weapons to fight well. In other words, Timothy, them's fighting words. <laughs> them's your fighting words. Don't just put them in the drawer. <laughs> Don't go, oh, that was nice. I'm glad you showed up, God. No, <laughs> them's our fighting words. <laughs> So one of the reasons God speaks to us through prophecies and personal words from Scripture is to arm us with the truth of God's heart, God's mind, and God's will for us so that we can fight whatever this world or the enemy throws at us. For believers, that fight is always going to be a fight of faith. In other words, it's going to be the fight to stay in faith. You see, we have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we can be pulled by circumstances, winds and waves and tragedies and all kinds of things that we don't expect. And our faith is shaken. We don't stay grounded in our faith. We let the circumstances blow us around. So our words and prophecies are weapons to be used against the lies and the deceptions of the enemy and against the pressures and storms of this world. In the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, the word weapon says this. This is the definition. Any instrument of offense or defense. Anything used or designed to be used in destroying or annoying your enemy. Woohoo! 
we get to destroy, and at the very least annoy, <laughs> the enemy. <laughs> Our personal words irritate the enemy. Unless, of course, you put it in a drawer. It doesn't bother him so much then. <laughs> what are we doing with your fighting words? Now, of course, our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemies are never flesh and blood. Even though sometimes we would like to use personal words against them, <laughs> that's never God's desire. <laughs> that would be flesh. Satan is our enemy. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle, and I like when you look into the Greek, it says, our wrestling. You see, I always looked at this as, oh, sometime in the future when I have something going on, I will wrestle. <laughs> I will overcome. No, he says, no, no, we are wrestling currently. We are always wrestling currently. Because Satan's always trying to get us off of our faith. In some way in our life, he wants us to worry. He wants us to fret. He wants us to be scared. He wants all of that. And he says we can fight that kind of stuff with our words. For we wrestle, or are wrestling not, against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, this wrestling is not, and should never be, something we physically do. <laughs> we are not supposed to be having wrestling matches with the devil in the middle of the night. We are not supposed to be having wrestling matches in the living room floor. <laughs> that is not what this is talking about. Because we have all power and authority over all demons. They have been defeated by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So we're not even supposed to be arguing with demons. They're defeated, and we're supposed to tell them where they're supposed to go. <laughs> and it's biblical. It's biblical. We should tell them to go back to the hell that they came from. And we should have a really good attitude about it, too. You will go back to hell because I am not letting you in my house. Years ago, the Lord taught me this truth in an up-close-and-personal way. It was the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, I awoke suddenly to being terrified. I could feel the presence of a demon, and I could hear demons laughing. And I was a relatively new believer. This had never happened before. <laughs> I was like, uh, Jesus! <laughs> what do I do about this? And the Lord said, just rebuke it. Just rebuke it. Oh. Okay, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And I heard these demons step back. They moved. But I could still hear them laughing. And I was like, uh, it kind of worked. <laughs> the Lord said, you rebuked them. They moved. They have to move when you rebuke them. I said, okay, well, I get rid of them. <laughs> and he said, plead the blood of Jesus over you your children, and your house. This is the property of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have no right to be in this house. And instantly, they left. That was a revelation. <laughs> One of the things I had asked the Lord for, as a new young believer, because I had heard this term, plead the blood of Jesus, and most of the time we don't really have a clue what that means. It means we are declaring that whatever Jesus' blood accomplished is now effective in our lives. It is effective right now, and I have the power and authority to use that effectiveness. But I had asked the Lord, asked him, I want to really have a good revelation of what the power of the blood does, how powerful it is. And that's what this little visitation was about. They showed up, and God said, oh, I can use this. <laughs> Let me show you the power and authority that you have 
over all the power of the enemy. But it's got to come out of your mouth. We release power and authority through our mouth. It makes all the difference. That day, I experientially received a revelation of the power and authority that I possessed because of the blood of Jesus Christ and his presence in me. I then knew by experience that demons had no power over me because of what Jesus had done. Prior to this, I was afraid of demons. Unfortunately, most Christians make demons really scary, really powerful. No, they are defeated. They have been stripped of all their power except one, the power to lie. So that day, my heart was convinced that I had no reason to be afraid of something that bowed to the name of Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of anything. It all has to bow to the name of Jesus. Not only does it have to bow to his name, but it has to be vanquished because of his blood. Vanquished means extinguished, gone. When I pled the blood of Jesus over me, my house, and my children, those things left. You see, they don't want to be anywhere near the blood of Jesus or a believer who knows the power of the blood of Jesus because we know they are nothing. They are nothing but little liars. That's all they can do. Years ago, because I was originally as a young believer afraid of Satan, I was like, I know I'm not supposed to be, but I am. Help me understand how I cannot be afraid of the enemy. And the Lord gave me this picture. He says, it's trick-or-treat time. And there comes to your door a little kid all dressed up with Satan, and he's got a big scary gun, and he says, I'm coming in, and I'm living here, and I'm taking all your money, and I'm going to tell you what to do. He says, what would you do? I said, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Nice try. (laughs) Go home, little boy. (laughs) And the Lord said, that's Satan. He is nothing but a small little imp who talks a big talk. That's all he is. And so from that point, the Lord was teaching me, I don't ever have to be afraid of whatever Satan says or shows up or throws up. It's all under the blood of Jesus and it's completely defeated. So if we as believers are fighting with demons, then we don't understand who we are or what the blood of Jesus has accomplished. There are lots of believers fighting demons because they don't know the truth of the power they possess to tell them to take a walk that whatever it is they're trying to tempt them to do, we see through you. (laughs) We know everything that comes out of your mouth is a lie. (laughs) So we're not going to believe that. But the enemy still has the ability to lie and to pressure us and torment us with his constant lying. And that's what he does. He doesn't just lie to you once. You see, it's easy for us to go, and then, but it comes right back. And it comes right back. And it comes right back. (laughs) And sometimes we're not actually addressing it. We're ignoring it. As I learned at Karis, ignoring is not resisting. We can ignore what the enemy says or what he's doing or however he's poking us. I'm just not going to look at the fact that I'm sick. I'm just not going to look at the fact that my checkbook is low. I'm not going to look. I'm ignoring that. See, I'm in faith. No, that's denial. (laughs) That's denying stuff. That's not addressing. (laughs) He gives us words, personal words from his scripture and personal words from other people so that we can use those as weapons against those lies and defeat the strongholds of thinking that are in our head. He may not have any feet. 
the enemy because he's been defeated. I love that. I love that. He has been defeated. God took off his feet so he cannot even stand. We get to stand in the presence of God. He is defeated. Now, even though he's defeated, he still has a tongue and he likes to wag it all day long. (laughs) But we can defeat that too. The only real power the enemy has is the power of deception. All he can really do is lie to us and try to get us to agree with his thoughts and get us to walk in agreement with his fleshly, really fleshly bad ideas. His only superpower is lying. So he's really good at it. Sometimes when he speaks to you, you don't even know it's him. You think it's just you, or wisdom, or logic. You think it's a good idea. Sounds Christian-y. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like it might be Jesus. <laughs> He's a really good liar. He likes to show up as an angel of light. He loves to deceive us. Now this is where the wrestling comes in. We wrestle with thoughts, with lies, the lies of the principalities, powers, rulers, and darkness of this world. We're not duking it out with demons. We can tell them to go wherever it is Jesus wants them to go, but that's not what's going to set us free from a demon. Understanding that they're lying to us is what sets us free. Understanding that Jesus is the truth and what he accomplished is the truth, and we're going to enforce that truth, that's what makes demons flee. A minister years ago who taught about inner healing, one of the things he said is, demons are never your problem. Demons are never our problem. They may be annoying, they may be aggravating, but they're not our problem. Our problem is what we're thinking. If you think of a garbage dump, lots of garbage means there's going to be lots of rodents. And if you think of what goes on in our head, (laughs) our thinking, if it's garbage, is going to attract rodents, demons. You see, demons don't have any power over Christians. They have to trick you. (laughs) They have to throw those darts at your head to try to get you to believe what they want you to believe. Demons are never our problem. If you get rid of the garbage, you get rid of the rodents. We have to change our thinking to align with the truth that is in Christ. Demons are never, never, never our problem. That's one of the lies they tell us is, oh, you can't do anything about me. I'm here on legal ground. Lie. He's a liar, 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 pants on fire. He's a liar. He has no legal ground. It doesn't matter if you've sinned. And that's taught in the church today. Oh, you've sinned. He's got legal ground. Lie. All of my sins are under the blood of Jesus, past, present, and future. Satan has no legal right to me no matter what I do or how big I feel. He has no right to touch my life. And I have to know that. I have to enforce that. So, we are not and will not physically wrestle with demons, (laughs) nor are we going to spiritually wrestle with demons either. Our spirit man is not physically wrestling with demon spirits. All of this wrestling happens in one place, our mind. Our mind is the battlefield where we either win over the enemy's lies or we succumb to them. I've been experiencing this exact kind of struggle for the past several weeks. I've been doing something called fat fasting. Now, that does not mean that I eliminate all fat from my diet. That would be a low-fat diet. (laughs) It means that I use healthy fats in liquid in order to help me fast solid food. Just like juice fasting, we use juice to help us fast solid food for longer periods of time. 
Well, I'm using healthy fats to do the exact same thing. It's part of reversing insulin resistance. And so that's one of the things that I'm practicing. So what I do is I drink hot liquids with an addition of a little bit of fat all throughout the day to stave off my hunger. My stomach doesn't growl. And the truth is I don't get physically hungry because my body says, oh, you're using fat as a fuel source. Well, we've got plenty of that. <laughs> we can just use the what's on your hips there. <laughs> so I'm not physically hungry, but my brain keeps trying to tell me to eat. My brain draws my attention to every single food commercial. I don't even eat the stuff that's on food commercials. <laughs> Never. <laughs> but my brain, which produces natural thoughts, keeps trying to get me to eat. I thought to myself, hey, brain, what are you doing? You're sabotaging my fast, <laughs> which is exactly what was trying to happen to me. You see, our bodies are programmed in such a way that they try to keep us alive at all costs. Now, that's generally a really good idea. <laughs> so when we stop eating like we normally do, our brain takes objection to it. Our brain produces thoughts to try to get us to want food. Every human being has this happening in them all the time. Your brain decides when you should be eating, usually because we've trained it. <laughs> we've trained it to have breakfast and a snack, get a lunch and a snack, get a dinner and a snack, and maybe a snack before bed, and maybe a snack in the middle of the night. <laughs> we don't actually need that much food. <laughs> we just happen to like it. <laughs> so our brain produces these natural thoughts to get us to do what it wants us to do. It wants to keep us from starving to death. It likes to use sugar as its main fuel. So when we use sugar as a main fuel, it uses whatever we put into it. So every couple of hours, it's knocking on the door saying, hey, need some more sugar. You see, it's not gonna go to the fat department and say, oh, we need some of that. No, because you've been feeding it sugar. So your body says, no, we live on sugar. And of course, once you start sugar, there's never enough sugar. <laughs> it comes in all sizes and colors and yumminess. You know, it's all really bad for us. <laughs> so those thoughts, weren't thoughts from my spirit man. And they weren't thoughts from God. They were all thoughts coming from the natural, physical realm. So this happens when we diet. It doesn't matter what your diet is. If you change your caloric intake, your brain will tell you to stop it. Stop. Stop burning calories. It will slow down your metabolism. If you diet, you slow down your metabolism. Sounds a little counterproductive, doesn't it? It is. <laughs> it is. But your body says, no, I will not let you starve yourself. It takes really hard work to try to starve yourself on purpose. <laughs> so what happens to me is my brain says, eat, start your starving, eat something, eat something. And I check my stomach. No, not growling, not hungry. But something in me, my brain is producing thoughts to say, you will do this. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> so this whole past couple of weeks, I've been practicing this fat fasting. And I was struggling with my brain. I, me, the real me, wanted to fat fast for my health. But my brain kept wanting me to eat anything and everything. <laughs> because what it does is it makes you want food more than if you were just regularly eating. So what happens when you fast for long periods of time is that when you start eating, you overeat. Not because you want to, 
because your brain tells you you have to because your brain's trying to keep you alive <laughs> which is generally a good thing now I have a question for you is this a spiritual battle yes it is most of us do not approach our eating as something that is spiritual now this is not a message on dieting. I'm just telling you how God was speaking to me, okay? So no condemnation if you're either on a diet or not on a diet, between you and Jesus. <laughs> the answer is yes, this is a spiritual battle. Now I'm not duking it out with demons. <laughs> but what I am doing is I'm spiritually wrestling with my own thoughts. This wrestling matches between my natural thoughts and my supernatural thoughts. My spiritual thoughts say, we are going to do this. We are going to fat fast. This is going to be so healthy for us. And my brain and physical body says, no, don't do that. Eat sugar. <laughs> you want sugar. And it's like, yes, I do physically, but not spiritually. Spiritually, I want to be healthy and walk in all that Jesus paid for me to have. So what I did was I kept casting away those thoughts of eating, but they wouldn't stay away. Now, they would go away for a couple of hours, but then they would sneakily come in and start whispering to me, you're getting hungry. <laughs> Don't you want a snack? <laughs> no, stop that. <laughs> so I kept casting those away. But after a while, I realized that my determination was beginning to wane. It was taking its toll on me, this constant nagging, eat, eat. No, no. <laughs> So I knew I wasn't strong enough to continue this in my own strength. So I chose to lean on the Lord for grace, his absolutely free loving kindness to me. I needed him to give me the strength by his grace to do what I was having a hard time doing. Because this was actually a spiritual battle, not a physical one. I needed spiritual strength to overcome my flesh. Now we don't usually think of it that way, but that's exactly what it is. So I began to pray, Father, I thank you that you have already graced me with your strength. I thank you that you have graced me with your thoughts. I thank you that you have graced me with the truth. I thank you that Jesus has graced me to succeed. You see, what I did was I addressed the thoughts with a prayer. By declaring the truth over yourself is prayer. Prophesying the truth out of your own mouth brings and releases power. After I had prayed, I just happened to notice this little book I have on fat fasting. So I picked it up, and this is what I read. Hunger is more a matter of the mind than it is of the stomach. And I thought, that is really true. See, now I already know all these truths, but sometimes we need to be reminded. <laughs> you know, okay, yeah, I already know this truth, but oh, that's right. See, we think of hunger as, you know, the dinner bell. It's time to eat again. <laughs> so we listen to our stomach, but we don't have to. We don't have to. We can understand that hunger is a matter of what's going on in our brain, not what's going on in our stomach. In other words, the battle is really in our head, not in our stomach. The truth is, no matter what we're facing or what kind of thing we're battling in the flesh, the battle is all in our head. It's God's thoughts versus the natural or demonic thoughts. We wrestle and war with thoughts. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, the Apostle Paul wrote this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world. That's because he's the prince of the power of the air, <laughs> and he is the spirit of the natural world and its natural ways of thinking. 
but the Spirit who is from God. That's what we received. That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. I love this for several reasons, but freely given, past tense. Everything we need for life and godliness is past tense. It's in our kingdom. It's in our account. It belongs to us, and we appropriate it by faith. That's the spirit from God, is that we have victory over whatever it is we're battling. We already have it. We're not working to get it. I'm not trying to become victorious. Right up here, I have to change what's going on. I'm not going to be victorious. I already am. And I fight from the fact that I already am. I fight that this victory belongs to me, and I'm not giving it up. We fight from the victory, not for it. And what we're fighting is really worldly thinking and worldly lies. We often don't recognize that the world is spiritual. The world is under the power of the prince of the air. They're influenced by the power of the prince of the air. We, however, are influenced by the spirit of the living God. And sometimes we forget that the world and its wisdom and its ways of doing things are under that spirit under that influence. So even if we call it natural, it's still a spiritual battle. The spiritual battle comes out against that which is merely natural. Verse 13, For we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul could not impart spiritual truth to those who were only natural, unregenerated men. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural, unregenerated person cannot understand or discern that they themselves and their thoughts are all under the influence of the Spirit of the world, but they are. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says this, But the spiritual one discerns all things. We as believers have the ability to discern what is and is not from God. We have all discernment. Okay, it's not a special gift that one person gets. Discernment is given to us because wisdom himself lives inside of us. And he is willing to impart his wisdom to our brain. (laughs) So that we understand what is the right thing to do, what is and is not of God. But the unspiritual person cannot discern these things. Unspiritual people think spiritual people are crazy. (laughs) Because we operate completely contrary to the way the world works. We think killing babies in the room is wrong. They think it's no, it's a matter of choice and convenience. It's a right. Totally opposite. Yet you cannot talk people with those kinds of views into seeing it God's way. They can't. I think that's what's so hard, is you want them to see the truth. And that's why God says pray for them, that their eyes be opened. We pray for people who are angry and mad and, you know, (laughs) all of that. They can't see. I think that's what's so frustrating, is we expect them to. (laughs) We expect them to see when they're blind. And so we get frustrated with them because we're not looking at it through God's eyes. Verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who will teach him? In other words, (laughs) the unspiritual person will think that he's more brilliant than God. (laughs) Which is so crazy. (laughs) But we, the spiritual people, we have the very mind of Christ. Because we are spiritual beings and we possess the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to be constantly influenced by the mind of Christ. We can hear and know his thoughts, his desires, and his will. So we can have our own natural thoughts, we can have, sometimes have demonic thoughts, and we have the thoughts of Christ all in the same headspace. 
That's a lot of people going on in there. That's a lot of stuff up there. <laughs> and it's true. We get our own natural thoughts in there. We get some of God in there and demons throw a couple darts at our head. And we're like, what? What do I do here? <laughs> and this is where the wrestling begins because we share headspace with all of these people. The word wrestle in the Webster's 1828 dictionary says this. To wrestle means to strive with arms extended as two men who seize each other by the collar and arms, endeavoring to throw the other by tripping his heels and twitching or twisting him off his center. The idea is grabbing back and forth to gain power over the other. He's painting a picture. That's what the word wrestle means. It actually paints the picture of two people grabbing hold of each other, and both of them are determined to take the other one down. That's what's happening in our head. <laughs> That's what's happening in our head. The natural thoughts are trying to grab a hold of the spiritual thoughts and wrestle them to the ground. They submit. And our spiritual thoughts are going, no, I'm not going to submit. <laughs> and so you get this wrestling. The second definition means to struggle, to strive, and to contend. Now, Webster says this about the word struggle. Properly to strive or to make efforts with a twisting or a contortions of the body. Hence, it means to use great efforts and to labor hard, to strive and to contend. It means to labor in pain or anguish, to be in agony, to labor in any kind of difficulty or distress. A lot of times this wrestling takes place when we are in pain. He knows if we're in pain physically, emotionally, mentally, aha, you're vulnerable. I will wrestle your thoughts. I will make you think like me. I will make you believe. I will make you give up your faith because he knows you're vulnerable when you're in pain. This is important because if you are in pain, you have to do the exact opposite of what you might want to do. If we're in pain or sick, we want to lay down, get comfy, get a heating pad, maybe an ice pack. We want to relax. And he says, no, this is when you should be fighting. You should do the exact opposite of what the natural man says to do. We have to fight those thoughts. That means you get out your little words, you get out your scripture cards, you get out your promises, and you go to war with the thoughts that are in your head. No, I'm not going to handle this naturally. I will handle it with the blood and power of Jesus. We have to make that decision. A lot of times when we get into the grace message, we think we understand that salvation is by grace, and we don't have to do any work to receive it. It's perfectly free. All of our covenant stuff is free. It's all paid for. It's all done. It's all there. Unfortunately, too many Christians are going, great, guess it's done. But it's not, <laughs> because you have to contend for it. He will come and steal it from you. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if you don't fight back, he will rip you off. He will take your health. He will take your job. He will take your money. He will take your kids. He will take your friends. He will rob you blind. We have to get the idea that we will stand. We will stand and declare the victory of the Lord. We are not giving in to the flesh. So this is what happens naturally in our minds <laughs> when we're trying to keep our thoughts on what God has said. We end up laboring hard to take dominion over those thoughts because the enemy knows he can keep coming back. You have got to wrestle him into submission. You resist the enemy and he will flee. But too many Christians are ignoring the enemy <laughs> and not resisting. The next definition is strive to make effort, to use exertions. Again, the reason I'm bringing this out is because we have to act. We have to act on our faith. Faith does stuff. <laughs> faith moves. <laughs> we have to exert energy to overcome the enemy. 
The second definition of strive is to oppose by contrariety of qualities. That's a real fancy way of saying <laughs> you have to use exactly the opposite of what the enemy is using against you. If the enemy is using fear, you have to use faith. If the enemy is using fear, you have to use love. Whatever he brings at you, you don't give him the same thing back. You have to use exactly the opposite. If he's bringing fear, you have to use that which encourages and establishes faith in whatever you're fighting. It's like with my fat fasting. He may be quiet. Oh, good, I won. It's not going to be long. You're still hungry, or you're still angry, or you're still poor. <laughs> no! Shut him down. Use effort. Use effort. Take the weapons that God has given to us and chop his head off. Send him back to where he belongs. <laughs> so that's why I like this one, because in the word wrestle, it means to use the exact opposite of what the enemy is using against you. So what God does is he gives us words and prophecies, fighting words, that are completely contrary to what we see or hear in the natural. He says, while you're laying there with a temperature of 102, he says, you're well, <laughs> you're healed. They're like, are you sure? <laughs> I feel that way. That's natural. <laughs> you have to stand for what belongs to you. With our fighting words, we got to use our fighting words. We are able to annoy the enemy and destroy the enemy's influence in our lives. Because these words are able to empower us to fight the good fight, which is to stay in faith and not get pushed off into fear, getting pushed off into doubt. We can stand and stay in faith with our words from God. We are to use these fighting words against all the carnal and natural thoughts that seek to pull us out of what God wants for us. We are to use them to take down the carnal thinking and destroy Satan's interference in our lives. God has given us fighting words to help us fight the enemy and win. God wants us apprehending all that he has promised. Now the context of 1 Timothy chapter 1 is that Paul had told Timothy that he didn't want Timothy to join him on his trip to Macedonia. This was his traveling buddy. This was his son in the faith. They were such good buds. And Paul says, no, you can't come. He says, I want you to stay in Ephesus in the midst of a church with a lot of false teachers, false brethren, and false doctrines. Oh, no, by the way, it's your job to fix it. <laughs> Paul knew that Timothy would have tremendous battles ahead of him. So the Apostle Paul told him to use the prophecies that he had been given as weapons against the wiles of the enemy. Paul knew that Timothy was going to need those weapons to stay on course and participate in bringing the will of God into being. Because God's will doesn't happen without our cooperation. I know lots and lots of Christians who have gotten words and prophecies from God, and they think, God, when are you going to do something? God's like, when are you going to cooperate? You say, just because God says, this is my will for you, this is what I have planned for you, this is what's going to happen in the future, if you follow me. <laughs> I know someone who received a prophecy that they would be married and have children, but he doesn't date. How is that going to work? No, it's not that God can't, but he's disgruntled because he thinks God has let him down. See, that's what happens when we start thinking, well, this is going to happen and I don't have to do anything to help you do it. Now, sometimes God will give us instructions and stuff like that. Absolutely. But we have to walk in agreement with God to apprehend all that he has for us. Otherwise, we're going to miss the boat and then they will rob us blind. We don't want that. <laughs> Because Paul had said to Timothy, 
I don't want you to come with me. There's a good possibility that Timothy's flesh really wasn't sure he wanted to stay at Ephesus with all those false teachers and false brethren and false doctrines. So Paul had to say, I know what's ahead of you is hard. You see, God will always forearm you. He will forearm you for what's ahead. You may get a prophecy today that's not going to come forth or to pass until sometime later. Years ago, the Lord told me that my two older children and I would all be married within a year's time. My two older children were both engaged. I was not. <laughs> I wasn't dating. <laughs> and Mr. Testerman didn't have a clue. <laughs> now, I knew God had told me that he had picked him for me, but that he had the freedom to choose what he wanted to do. Even though God had picked him for me, he could say thanks but no thanks. And that's not fair. <laughs> so when the Lord told me this, that they, I would be married, within the same year as my children, I thought, how on earth are you going to do that? Okay, now there was nothing I could do to make that come to pass. Well, I could, I suppose. I could go out and find somebody who will marry me, but that's not what I wanted. (laughs) And so I asked the Lord to confirm it. And at one of my children's wedding, a member of the family came and said, this one's getting married and this one got married today and you must be next. You should all get married in the same year. This was not a believer. And yet he's confirming my prophecy. Guess what? I was married within one year. You see, there are prophecies you cannot do anything about. But in the midst of when God told me and it came to pass, there was a whole lot of obedience. A whole lot of waiting. A whole lot of... (laughs) Tell me again, Jesus. Tell me again. (laughs) You sure I got this right? (laughs) We need to stop taking the thoughts that the enemy throws at our heads and letting them come out of our mouth. That's one of the things I saw in my friend who's waiting for a bride to fall from heaven. (laughs) Is he's constantly complaining that he doesn't have what God promised. What is that going to do for you staying in faith? No, when we're speaking against what we're believing for, it's like when we're believing for healing and we keep saying, I'm so sick, I'm so tired. When is this going to happen? We're prophesying in the wrong direction. We're prophesying in the wrong direction. When fear and headaches, we got to oppose that. No, I am healed. No, I am pushing you back. No, you're not taking what belongs to me. We have to use our words. Now, up to this point, we've talked about waging a good warfare and holding on to faith. That's really what we're talking about, holding on and sticking our ground and saying, I'm going to live and operate by faith. But we haven't yet looked at the second part of this good warfare. We are to hold faith and a good conscience. First Timothy 1.18 and 19a says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Satan is always seeking to disrupt both our faith and our good conscience with his lies. The word holding here means to, to have in hand and to continue to hold. That's why he didn't use the word, you have faith. He said, no, this is a present reality. (laughs) You have it and you are holding it. You're ready. (laughs) But you also have a good conscience. So Timothy already had faith in God and a good conscience. The prophecies spoken over him helped him to continue to believe what he knew to be true about himself and his relationship with God and what God was preparing him to do. A good conscience is a clear conscience, a clean conscience. It's one that believes 
what God says is true, that we have been fully reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ to back to God our Father, and that God our Father is not holding our sins against us anymore, that he has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west, that he has made us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and we cannot become disqualified by our failures or our sins, because everything God has given to us is not because of our performance, but because of his grace. An evil conscience is a conscience that is guilty and cannot find release from its guilt. That is an evil conscience. It is hateful, it is prideful, and it is self-condemning. It won't accept God's absolutely free loving kindness because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It believes it must pay for its own debts and its own sins and make itself right in the sight of God by good behavior or extreme behavior, and sometimes by no behavior. They don't believe they can make themselves right at all, which is true. (laughs) So it's good that they get to that part. (laughs) They come to the realization that Jesus, by his blood, washes away all of our sins, past, present, and future. He doesn't hold our present sins against us. They're already paid for. That's what fully reconciled means. An evil conscience says, but I feel so bad. I feel so guilty. I've fallen so far. How will I ever recover? That's an evil conscience. An evil conscience says, why don't I have enough faith? Why aren't I better at being a Christian? That's an evil conscience. Those are things that come from the enemy. Those are not the thoughts and the desires and heart of God. God says, I have made you completely righteous in my sight, completely acceptable. I love you with an everlasting love. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What is wrong with you? <laughs> Your thinking, your thinking is wrong. <laughs> the Holy Spirit helps us to come to the truth that every conscience is evil until it comes to the complete understanding that Jesus' blood has washed away all of our sin and all of our guilt just because he loves us. Hebrews 10:12 says this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There are way too many Christians with an evil conscience. And our evil conscience will shut down your faith in a heartbeat. It's one of Satan's favorite ways to shut down a Christian. Oh, you're not good enough. Oh, look, you failed. Oh, you made mistakes. Who do you think you are? I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We have got to talk back and tell him who we are and what we will and will not accept. In order to fight a good fight and war a good warfare, we have to have a good conscience. An evil conscience will not let us operate in faith. When our heart condemns us, we will lack the confidence that God is as good as he says he is. First John chapter 3, verses 20 through 22 says this, Whenever our conscience condemns us, we will be assured that God is greater than our conscience and knows everything. Love that. Dear friends, if our conscience doesn't condemn us, we can boldly look to God and receive from him anything we ask. It is the condemnation, the self-disqualification, the self-hatred, all of that, that stops our faith cold. So when we see those thoughts coming, who do you think you are to have a prophecy? Child of God, righteousness of Jesus. Who are you? I am more than a conqueror through him who loves me. That's who I am. But we have to understand the enemy's favorite, one of his most favorite, is to get a Christian condemned and walking in self-loathing and hatred. Because God can't do anything with you. That's the whole point. If you loathe yourself, if you loathe your mistakes that, look, I did this, I went my, uh, stop that. Stop that. 
He's not counting our sins against us. He's like, yeah, you messed up. Now let's get up and go on here. Let's change our thinking. <laughs> you can do this. <laughs> a good conscience is a conscience at peace in the grace of God. It never has anything to do with our performance. With a peaceful conscience, we can stay in faith and war a good warfare. You see, when we are under condemnation, we don't fight. We give up. That's what condemnation makes us do. It makes us give up. And that's why it's so important to, have, to know that our conscience, we should go to the Lord. God, yeah, I messed up. Cleanse my conscience. I know it was wrong. Help me to not make that mistake again. Give me wisdom. It is the blood of Jesus that cleanses our conscience. When we accept the truth, it doesn't matter how far I fell down, how badly I messed up. The blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience. I am free from condemnation. I will never be judged for my sin. I am free from all of that. Our Father gives us, through the communication of the Holy Spirit, fighting words. <laughs> the Apostle Paul tells us what prophecy does in our lives. 1 Corinthians 14.3 But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. You see, we're supposed to fight the enemy with exhortation, edification, and comfort. That's what God does in us and for us so that we can fight a good warfare. Now, I know we looked at this a little bit in previous message, but I want you to see them again. Edification means to build up, raise up, or to edify. It includes the idea of instruction, improving knowledge, bringing understanding, clarification, or confirmation. God brings all of this through his written word or his personal word ministered by the Holy Spirit to us. He's never going to tear you down. He's going to build you up. He's going to tell you how you can do it, how it's already been done, that you can believe him. Like our word today, I am your great reward. All of those things, I will never fail you. Why? Because I'm faithful. He's going to always counteract what we're thinking in the natural with that which is true from his character and his love and his nature. Why do we need God to minister that which builds up and brings instruction, understanding, clarification, and confirmation? Because the enemy is always trying to tear us down and get us to doubt. Doubt about what we heard God say. Doubt about our ability to hear God. Doubt about the goodness of our Father. Doubt about the veracity of God's word. And primarily, Satan is always trying to get us to doubt the character and nature and love of a good, good Father. The lies that he told Adam and Eve are the same ones he uses on us. Lies like, you can't really trust God. After all, he's withholding good things from you. He doesn't want you to be just like him and know the difference between good and evil. How ridiculous is that? <laughs> of course God wanted us to know the difference between good and evil, just not by experience. God never wanted us to have experiential knowledge of evil. And you know what? He still doesn't. He wants to give us words so we can go around those things, those traps, those sand pits that the enemy has planned for us. He will give us prophecies that will give us what we need to fight those things. Satan took a little bit of truth and twisted it into a lie. He always lies. He always lies. He's the father of lies. All lies can be traced back to him. He is the source of lies. <laughs> Satan loves to ask us, did God really say? Why do we write down our prophecies? Why do we keep track of them? Because Satan will come to you and say, did God really say? Or was that just you? <laughs> and our answer should always be yes. And he confirmed it with two or three different witnesses, too. <laughs> I know exactly what my father said. He doesn't mind repeating it to me over and over and over again so I can stand in my faith and fight a good fight. The Holy Spirit will give or bring to us words to fight these doubts about ourselves and about our God. Words that bring edification are fighting words. 
They are words that enable and empower us to fight the lies that bring doubts and confusion. And the second thing that um, prophecy does is it brings exhortation. I like this one. Exhortation means to encourage. I always think of that as like a little pep talk. Little pep talk, God, you know, encourage me. But that's not what God says. That's not what God means by it. He says exhortation or encourage means to give courage to, to increase confidence of success, to inspire with courage, strength, spirit, strength of mind, to embolden, to animate, to incite, to incite you to get your words out and start fighting that enemy and taking him down. That's what encouragement does. It gives us courage to believe and to do according to that which the Holy Spirit is imparting to us. Webster's 1828 dictionary says this about courage. It is bravery, intrepidity. Sometimes I have to use the dictionary to understand the dictionary. (laughs) It means fearlessness. That quality of mind which enables men to encounter danger and difficulties with firmness and without fear or depression of spirit. Courage. God will give us a word so that we will have the courage to go through things that are dangerous, to overcome things that are difficult, and without becoming overwhelmed by depression because things didn't happen the way we expected. Why do we need God to minister courage and confidence to us? Because our enemy's number one weapon is fear. Condemnation and fear work hand in hand. And the reason is because it's his number one most effective weapon. You see... If you know who you are in Christ and that all of your sins are forgiven, you will learn to throw condemnation aside. But fear comes to everyone about something. And often it stops us in our tracks cold. So when we have fear, what do we need? We need God to speak a word to us, a word that encourages us that we can overcome and we have already come and he has given us the power to face whatever we face. And we don't have to be afraid and we don't have to be overwhelmed. He gives us courage. The enemy tries to bring us all different kinds of fear. Fear of God, fear of punishment, fear of the future, fear of death, fear of failure, fear of loss, fear of lack. All the things that are under the curse. (laughs) He tries to bring fear in every area of our life. But I think his favorite one is the fear of Satan himself. I think he loves to make people afraid of him. To talk them into thinking that he is bigger and stronger than we are. And if we understand that he is a liar, he is a little kid in a costume with a big stupid gun, (laughs) and he can't do anything but lie, we will be able to overcome easily with the words that God has given us. It is the truth that enables us to not fear anything from a defeated enemy. The last one is comfort. When God gives us a prophetic word, a prophecy, a word from Scripture, it is that which comforts or refreshes the spirit. In other words, it brings relief in affliction, and it brings hope for the future. Webster's 1828 says this about comfort. It is relief from the distress of mind, the ease and quiet which is experienced when pain, trouble, agitation, or affliction ceases. You ever been in a position where something was very weighing on you really heavily, and all of a sudden something happens, God gives you a word, all of a sudden you see it differently, and a peace comes, even if the outside hasn't changed yet. You see, he gives us the victory first, so the victory can be worked out through us. He does that through giving us words. It also implies some degree of positive animation of the spirit. In other words, it changes our countenance. (laughs) It changes the way we approach the situation. And some pleasurable sensations derived from hope. Hope feels good. 
Hope feels awesome. We need hope for the future. We need to know that we can expect good things from our Father. And along with that, agreeable prospects, which also brings consolation. That's what he means by that. I'm closing with these scriptures, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Where is our strength? Is it in how hard we work? No. Our strength isn't in how hard we work. Our strength comes from Christ so that we can work out what he's given us. We go to him for the grace, the grace of strength. When I couldn't overcome the fasting, (laughs) I couldn't overcome the wrestling, I needed grace. Grace strengthens us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The whole armor of God is not something we actually put on. I've been to many seminars where they tell you how to put everything on. We're already wearing everything. When the word tells us to put on something, it's something we rest in. Sink down into these truths so that they overwhelm you. Like clothes. That we are overwhelmed with the fact that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. And yet Satan is a liar. He can't do anything to us. <laughs> That's what it means to put on the whole armor of God. The whole truth of what our salvation is. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the only thing they can do is lie. That's it. Verse 13. Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God, the fullness of our salvation, and who he is and who we are, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. He says there's a fight, but it's all in your head. It's all right up here. We fight against thoughts, not against things. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth, the truth that God is speaking to you on a daily basis, the truth of God's word in its entirety. The truth is what sets us free. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that's my favorite part. We have put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is who I am. That is what I wear. I wear Jesus' robe of righteousness. And when we understand what that is and what it does for us, The enemy cannot bring any condemnation or self-loathing into our lives. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are at peace with God no matter what happens. God is not mad at us no matter what happens. We are always at peace with him and he is always at peace with us. And we understand that Satan can't come along and just push us off our stand in faith. It goes on. Withal taking up the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. That's the stuff he throws at our head. <laughs> he throws those darts, those demonic thoughts. You're minding your own business, and all of a sudden there's this terrible thought. You're like, oh, where did that come from? From the enemy. He wants you to think it comes from you, but it doesn't. It comes from the enemy. He says, lift up your shield of faith. Understand what belongs to you, that you are standing in faith and in victory. Raise it up and clunk, clunk, clunk. He just hits your shield. <laughs> taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word, the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all. Yes, everything is by grace, but if we're going to have it all and keep it all, we're going to have to fight for it, because we have a real enemy. But if we resist that enemy with the words of God, the prophecies from God, we can have it all. We can have it all. We have to keep him from stealing. We have to teach ourselves to understand what is from God and what is not. We are fighting a fight, but it is the fight to stay in faith and believe the truth of what God says in the midst of contrary and difficult circumstances. 
That's when it gets hard. That's when we're tempted to say, where are you, God, in this? And then when he's right there with you, he's right there holding you. He hasn't left, but our flesh, our natural thoughts, will try to convince us that we are all alone. It is in the midst of contrary and difficult circumstances that God will remind you of the words he has taught you, of the words that he has, he has brought to you in the past. He will say, you remember that word? Get it out. You start prophesying this over your life. You start prophesying the truth over his lies. Do something completely opposite to what he's doing. We can do it. We can overcome in every situation because God gives us fighting words. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you that you are so, so faithful. You are so, so good. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You're always in us and with us. You surround us with your presence, with your love, with your peace. You give us all that is available in Christ Jesus. We thank you that we don't have to put on something like clothes, but that we just sink down into the truth, that we are at rest with God. We are at peace with God, and condemnation is never my portion. I thank you, Father God, that we stand always right in your sight even when we physically blow it. You're never mad. You only want to help us and restore us to all of your glorious plan that you have for us. Father God, I ask that you remind us to get out our words. And if we don't have any, to get some words, to spend some time listening to the Holy Spirit. Father, what do you say about this situation? And understand that you are giving us weapons whereby we will fight a good fight of faith. We will overcome with the word of the Lord and the word of our testimony. The blood of the Lamb has already overcome, and we get to take hold of that and bring it into the reality of this physical world. We thank you, Father God, for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.